0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 21st, 2021. For 2121, it sounds ominous, it doesn't really mean anything, just Think about it, 421, 21. 21. Uh, I wish you could do a little Winston Churchill voice there. I think that would sound cool. Anyway, I have, if I sound like I'm in a good mood, I do because I've already completed today's interview and it was freaking awesome. Qu- Christian Westbrook, or you may know him better by his on screen name Ice Age Farmer joins us today at the Survival Podcast. This turned into a really long interview because it was so fascinating to have this discussion. And it really was less an interview and more a discussion between two people that I think have followed each other's work for a while. And really, uh, maybe we have some disagreements, but we agree like 97.5% I'm going to go on record with on that. And uh, so it just turned into a great conversation. As long as it went, like an hour 40 or something like that, I thought about splitting it in half, and as I kind of looked at it, I went, there's just not a natural place to do that. This should just be what it is, and if you want to listen to it over a couple days, you can do that. Um, Fantastic interview, so I'm going to keep the introduction short since it went so long. I just want to start out with a quote of the day today that I think fits into this interview really, really well. Uh, This was by the Marquis de Lafayette, and he said, Insurrection is the most sacred of rights and the most indispensable of duties. We have been uh, conditioned to believe that insurrection is a terrible thing, though we live in a nation that was founded by insurrectionists. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? However, we do have to think carefully and strategically with modern insurrections. And when you hear... The war that's being waged on us today, and I don't think that's hyperbole or extreme to say that. The war that is being waged on free humanity today, that's really what... Well, I don't think we use that terminology at all, but it's it's what we're talking about. And if you don't believe that by the end, I don't know that we can help you. But when you have a war being waged on you by the people in authority, then it is your most sacred right and your most indispensable duty to act with sedition and insurrection. We do use the word sedition today. We absolutely do. But this has to be a strategic insurrection. And since what they're attacking, in a large degree, not everything, but one thing they're definitely attacking is our freedom to choose where we live, how we live, and our freedom to grow, produce, and procure our own food. And if you have a hard time accepting that, after you listen to today's show again, I, I, I don't think you should. And I challenge you, anything Christian says that you're like, no, that can't, look it up. Do just a little bit, like five minutes of research, you can confirm everything he claims. If they're going to attack that, then that should be the first place we act with sedition. And you'll hear us talk a little bit about strategic relocation today as well, specifically me, and how we develop local economies, we build these things, and we make it very difficult For them to do to us what they want to do to humanity. I think it is our only real play right now. And the next play, the next play is pretty horrific. And if it goes to that, it goes to that. But I think that choosing the time, the place, and the means by which you fight a battle is the key to victory. Sun Tzu taught us that. With that, let me introduce our special guest of this time, Christian Westbrook. He's a researcher. Food freedom activist and founder of the Ice Age Farmer broadcast, which looks deeply at the future of our food supply from the agenda to centralized control of the food and to defile our diets with insects and lab-grown meat. No, that is not an exaggeration. We're talking about how to meet these challenges, how we need to inform people of how to respond. And he also talks a lot about a rapid move to an emergent, decentralized, regenerative food system. That's a big ethos that he has. It's something we share in common. I'm really, really happy to bring him on with us today. And, uh, man, with that, hey, Christian, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. I'm thrilled to be here. Glad to have you on. My audience loves you. Uh, I've been asked to get you on more than a few times. And we're going to talk about climate shift. We're going to talk about pending food shortages, short-term I think we should discuss because there's some things right now happening, and then longer-term coinciding with climate shifts and what have you. A lot of people here are familiar with your work, but there's a lot of people probably aren't. So can we start out with who exactly is Christian, a.k.a. the Ice Age Farmer, and how did you end up doing the things you're doing today as far as creating content and explaining these things to people?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I um, have been looking – I think like a lot of your listeners have been looking deeply at reality and a lot of the crazy stuff that's going on for, for some time now. But it was really in looking at the, uh, the climate agenda, the global warming hoax, and trying to understand what was going on there and then also uh, where it was going, why, why they needed to engineer this idea of um, radically shifting us all into a, a new totalitarian reality, that I started looking at the history of solar cycles and found out about the grand solar minimum, the fact that this has been, for all of recorded history, and certainly before that, driving climate on this planet. Um, and so just very briefly, I'll, I'll say that there is, you know, a lot of people know there's sort of an 11-year Schwab cycle of the solar activity on the sun, where it will go to a maximum and then a minimum, and those are just normal, sort of the heartbeat of the sun, But in addition to those 11-year cycles, there's a larger grand maximum and a grand minimum cycle. And we've been enjoying a grand maximum for the last 80 or 90 years here. You can find this even on Wikipedia. It's pretty open about this. Um, And it's during that last 100 years that we've really stood up all of our modern agriculture, the monocropping at scale, and it's very fragile. It's very bespoke for the conditions we've been enjoying during these stable growing seasons. Um, We're now entering, though, into a grand minimum where those we lose those stable conditions, where things get a little crazier. Uh, you can look back at the cycles in history. I have a little page up here because I think it's fascinating but also very insightful. You can look at iceagefarmer.com slash history to get a sense of the um, what happens when the sun's activity drops off into one of these grand minimums. There are um, precipitative extremes, you know, droughts and floods. There are temperature extremes, lots of hailstorms, a weakened jet stream, seismic and volcanic activity picks up. And just generally, there's an unstable growing seasons. And that manifests in um, I mean, your food shortages. And unfortunately, throughout history, people people die as we enter these, these periods. And empires, you know, when that happens, kings will lose the divine right to rule and empires will fall. Um, there's really compelling correlations between solar activity and the Chinese uh, uh, emperors, the empires there. So just in looking at this was... Um, really trying to understand where are we in this cycle, how are things happening now, and seeing tremendous crop losses over these past few years. I expected, though, to see governments taking steps to improve food production, to make it more resilient, to uh, you know, to insulate us from what's going on here. And um, oddly, what I found was that they were doing quite the opposite, right? They were making things even more fragile. They were preparing to seize upon this crisis taking total control over food production. I mean, that's what the uh, cryptocracy generally does, is never let a crisis go to waste, right, turn it into an opportunity. Um, So a lot of the things I just mentioned, those unstable growing seasons, it's become more and more obvious over time. Just yesterday, it was snowing across the Corn Belt. There's been record snow this late in the season. Uh, We've got some cold temperatures these next two weeks that are going to slow down our planting progress. Meanwhile, Brazil's corn crop, the saffrona, is suffering. There's, it's, uh, we're starting to get a sense for, after all the damage that was done to their soybean crop this season, how late the saffrona is and how that's going to affect their corn yields this year. It's, all, uh, it's very interesting. It was looking into these crop losses and seeing that they were actually being hidden from us over the past few years. And, in fact, we were being positioned not to um, to make ourselves more resilient to this drop in food production, but for an engineered collapse. And so that became more of a bigger research area into who is engineering this food scarcity? How does it tie into these broader agendas? Why are they collapsing in the food supply chain? All stemming from that initial look into you know, climate cycles. And that's sort of where, where the research has taken me. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, what you're saying makes
0: me think of a quote by Aldous Huxley uh, that I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but it was essentially that the only real lesson from history – is that no one ever learned a lesson from history, and I think that there's <laughs> yeah. like people like you and me and individuals that we certainly do, but I don't think he was speaking of that. I think he was speaking of the people in charge, right? Like the the, the people that end up making the decisions that um, created, let's say, our educational system that said we got to have them study history so you know we don't repeat the the errors of the past. Yet it seems like the errors of the past are continuously repeated. And in the case of something like a solar cycle, I think it's really important that people understand something. We don't think this will happen. We absolutely know based on historical record, this cycle exists. We're entering that period of the cycle. And then the only question in a grand solar minimum this time around is how minimum? Like this is not... Well, maybe it'll happen. This isn't ninety-nine percent probability it'll happen. This is this is how the sun works, and when it's done, like you think of Old Faithful, the geyser, right? Like there's a time I don't know what it is, but you can go to Old Faithful and wait, and guess what? It goes because it. That's why they call it Old Faithful. It's on a, a a kind of. It's almost like it's a timer, but it's really a natural cycle. These solar cycles are natural cycles. They're as natural as they could be. And clearly humanity has no control over them whatsoever. Like, we don't, there's nothing we can do on Earth that changes what the sun does. The other way around, sure, but like, we don't, we don't have a switch to change this thing. And when you can look at something historically and see that it has happened like a clock over and over again, then you know it's coming. And, It it amazes me that anybody would even deny this other than it is counter to the narrative. So I guess with that in mind, do you think they created the narrative knowing it was counter? Or do you think they created the narrative and it's what they're using and now they have to defend the narrative no matter what?
1: That's an interesting question. I I do think that there. I could almost go either way on that, but I do think that there's a tendency for these people to use inversion to to literally lie to you as they are telling you one thing, knowing it and sort of enjoying it and getting off on that. So yeah, I think we saw um, in the 70s there was a warning. You know, a lot of scientists came out and said, hmm, it looks like temperatures are about to drop off because the sun's about to go into a period of diminished activity. And that, um, you know, there was some noise about that. I think there was a Newsweek cover, and then it just went away. And right around then was when the words global warming were really introduced into the lexicon and we started hearing about uh, CO2 and all the things that the Club of Rome has made popular now. Um, so I I don't know. The, you know, I certainly can't say deterministically, but my opinion would be that this was, yeah, this was a deliberate inversion of the truth so they can laugh all the way to the bank as they enslave humanity.
0: See, I because I remember kind of this overlap. I'm old enough that I remember the 70s and the early 80s where it was, it was not every night, but it was like at least once a month, some guy was on TV with a computer model showing a new Ice Age coming. Like, that was the thing. And then then we had, you know, this, this global warming narrative come into play, and there was a brief period where there was an overlap in the narrative. And then, like you say, the, the underlying narrative went away, and I remember, like, the blizzard of 86 when the idiots in Philadelphia decided to snowplow the snow into the Delaware River, caused an ice dam and backed it up into the neighborhoods and froze everything out. And up where we were in the mountains, the only way you could see the car was by the antenna sticking over the snow and thinking, this is insane. Where does this idea come from? And then we did go into a period of natural warming through the 90s. -hmm. It definitely got warmer. But that doesn't change your, you know, those are your micro cycles, your 11-year cycles like you mentioned. That doesn't change the macro cycle.
1: Right. And if you, yeah, and if you look at, you know, some people are like, well, there's solar cycle 25 is beginning, so obviously there's not a grand solar minimum happening. And I just want to be very clear, when you look back at the Dalton minimum, it was characterized by reduced solar activity, but that 11-year Schwab cycle still happens. It's just diminished. And that's exactly what we've just uh, enjoyed here after a very small solar cycle 24. Solar cycle 25, which we're just entering into now, like I said, it's picking up, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to be smaller. So we're already in a period of reduced Uh, Activity and we're already feeling those effects, and we'll talk more about that if you like. But um, but uh, and then even if that is all, then that's where we are. That's where we are now. But uh, NOAA's own predictions and a lot of models out there, if you survey the literature, all anticipate that there will be an even more protracted Monder style minimum where it does drop off to you know no sunspots for a bit, and that means, of course, that means more extreme version of the of the symptoms that we'll be experiencing.
0: And I think people really, because there's been so much alarmism around global warming, don't understand something you kind of hit a little bit on in your first segment I gave you there, which is that humanity prospers when the planet warms up. And humanity Mm -hmm. tends to do pretty bad when the climate cools down. And this entire mindset of moving toward like an all-grain diet, uh, heavy into legumes, is... if if this is coming and again i think we both agree it is absolutely asinine what i think of is looking out at my property this morning we had a light frost and it wasn't enough to kill but like all my pepper plants etc and my beans etc like kind of like they're sad you know they're just kind of like weepy and like they'll come back and i didn't protect them because i knew they'd be all right but they Mm -hmm. they were hit pretty hard um and this is not even freezing. This is like a, a, a moderate frost, mid-30s. But my grass was all like, okay, yeah, let's, let's let's go. I like that. When we had two degrees below zero here a month and a half ago, two days after the snow melted, the grass was green and growing. You know what? eats grass cows, right? Ruminants, mm-hmm. right? So if you traditionally look at human settlement, the colder the climate the more that human settlement relied on animals and animal product, and the closer to the tropics, the more they relied on plant-based nutrition. Because that's just how biology works. So if we're moving toward a colder climate, then we should be moving toward more grazers and ruminants and critters that eat things that we can't eat, or that we really don't want to eat, and convert it into high-quality nutrition. And this is where I maybe agree with you. Like they laugh as they do their psychopathic manipulation of society. Like you're, they're literally doing the exact opposite of what any intelligent being would do, looking at those two trends and looking at history.
1: Yeah, which is it's, it's hard to argue. At some point, you're like, these guys aren't just idiots. As you said, they're doing they the exact that, opposite. They can't be that stupid, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't so be in power
0: on. for thousands yeah. of years and be that stupid. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But yeah, Yeah.
1: no, you're you're right. And so and so they know what what they're they're doing. And they're doing exactly the opposite. And that's why that's why I I use the words that I do that this is a designed and engineered uh, food scarcity that's being used to bring in this new agenda that they have. Yeah.
0: But how's it going to work? Right? So you want to get everybody eating soy burger or whatever. And you mean clearly like we have like I said, I think we have to be clear or we sound maybe a little loony. We have two separate things going on here. We have some climate-induced issues right now, but we also have, like, a generalized short-term supply chain, and it's way beyond disruption, right, because COVID. Yep. And then we have more of the longer-term macro cycle. Like, I think, I think honestly, you and your forecast into the future is way more pessimistic than mine. Mine's probably about half a year's. And I always caution people when I say that, I'm like, don't think that's good, right? Don't think that means everything's going to be okay. But there are those two separate disruptions, but it seems like they're trying to force them together to create one big one.
1: Yeah, exactly. They want to, yes, this acute situation will be pointed at. People will see, you know, prices are already exploding. I'm getting emails from people every day, like, I can't believe the, the cost of XYZ, it's exploding. Um, and so that has to happen. So that This is part of the problem-reaction solution, right? Hegelian dialectic formula, where now this has happened. They can point at these prices rising or shortages or whatever's going on and say, look, this is why. This is why we have to take over the entire food supply. And so that plays into that longer, uh, chronic, <laughs> if you will, um, agenda to to take total control of the food supply.
0: Where I see a lot of very hungry people. And I think that There'll be some insulation in the developed world, like what the people that always get punched in the in the in the the nuts the hardest in any shortage is the developing world, the third world. Um, that doesn't mean that everything will be hunky dory down on Maple Street, but when I start thinking about the billions of people in the developing world, it seems like this is really bad for them. And I also wonder, like I know when people use terms like depopulation agenda. They all of a sudden they think you're strapping your foil hat on real tight or anything. But if I try to put myself in the mind of these psychopaths, and I let some of the thoughts I've had go into their mind, it gets to where you would understand why they would do this. So I was watching a show on like ancient engineering, I think, on Curiosity Stream a couple weeks ago, and it wasn't really about shipping and stuff like that. But what they were doing is showing like how they built the pyramids and how that compares to modern engineering, and they were showing this port. And I was watching these ships, container ships, come and go. And they, you know, like, sped up um, speed on the film. And my immediate thought was, oh my God, we're going to use everything up. We're parasites. And I I think there is some level of like, reality in that. Like, a species that doesn't moderate its own population, sooner or later, it will be moderated by reality. And so to me, I, I, I really fear that these people, instead of thinking, hey, let's educate people, let's Let's learn to live within our means and our resources, like it's very clear looking at history that the way they look at the rest of society is these people are just too stupid. They're just too stupid. they cannot be left to themselves. and I do think they start to look at us the way that I might look at chickens or ducks on my farm. My land has a carrying capacity. I got too many ducks. Some of them have to go and, and I really feel like that that is how this all feels. Does that sound insane, or does that sound, you know, frighteningly accurate?
1: It sounds, you know, I, I can appreciate where you're coming from, but I think the reality is that there is a that, that it's an evil agenda. You know, there's just there's no mincing words at this point. Right? There's yeah. a legal. <laughs> the I say it wasn't evil. I'm saying that's yeah. how they
0: get there because every human being, save a very small number of people, true, complete, over the top, like psychopaths, has a moral code. It's just different than yours. And they will attempt the mental gymnastics to justify what they're doing, right? And like, Uh, so that's where I think I also like, I'm really worried about vaccines. I think that there may be a sterility agenda, kind of let's, let's reduce population through, you know, atrophy rather than
1: direct murder. Who knows? But like, I don't trust these people at all. Yeah, no, and we shouldn't. But here's let me just offer one thing and that is like if you're running your own homestead, you as you just said, you've got to feel for the carrying capacity. You don't try and go above that because you know it's going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. Like maybe you have an extra cow this year, but that means you'll never have that many cows again for the rest of your life, right? You you don't want to mate rabbits too early because that will reduce their ability to have offspring for the rest of their lives. So yeah. you you respect you work with your land, and, and it's only when you are divorced from these things, when you've got these corporations. Like, for example, look at the the CAFOs, right? The concentrated animal feeding operations that are just no one in their right mind would ever design a CAFO and say, hey, this is a great thing. I can, I can do this. I want to do this with my land by choice. So this is something that they have done in big corporate environments. It's been mergers and acquisitions back, you know, for a hundred years now, trying to take, consolidate control. Everyone knows that's happened with media, that there's only five companies that control media, but the same agribusiness giants, the same thing has happened on, uh, food, Cortiva, Bayer, Cargill, Syngenta, they own, like, more than half—it's like 76 percent, according to a recent study in the UK—of the food supply is controlled by these big companies. So it's they that created these nasty, unsustainable, disgusting CAFOs and other examples like that. And now, again, right, they're creating that problem, and now they're pointing at these things and saying, "Whoa, this is gross! Like, we shouldn't be allowed to have animals. No one should be allowed to have animals." <laughs> and so it's almost like they've created this this nasty-looking straw man as an excuse to come take away your ability to grow food. Because I I guess that would be my reaction, is that I don't see... uh, If humanity were doing things small-scale, regeneratively, I don't see us acting like a virus. I see us acting more like a shepherd working with the earth and taking care of it. Uh, It's only when we go to this at-scale, corporate, divorced-from-the-land approaches that you see things like those atrocities.
0: No, I think we agree there. I'm more talking about the mindset there. The mindset being... Mm -hmm. And I think that they... I think that they really do look at all of us as, as animals. Like, we're just to be farmed and ranched. But I also think, like, all animals are, e- all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And I think, right. even, even for us lowly peons, there's a stratification. And I think when they look at the third world, they look like it's an even further down the nose look. And I think that they think of these people just breed like crazy. So the CAFO thing is really a separate issue than what I'm talking about. I'm talking more about human population. Like, the total number of human beings on the planet, you know, exceeding like 9 billion or something like that. Now, I I also think it's alarmist BS because the human population is already moderating itself. Like, one of the reasons these developing places have such high reproduction numbers is, you know, lack of education. Like, hey, you don't have to do this. Uh, But part of it is, do you put an organism under stress? It makes more of itself faster. Even if it's not conscious. So like, if you wanted a fruit tree to fruit young, this is not a good idea, but if you wanted to make it happen, what you do is you stress the tree. And the tree immediately will fruit with everything it has because it thinks what? You know, in in however plants think, right? I'm going to die. So my, mm-hmm. my purpose in life as a pear tree is to drop pears so that at least two pear trees will exist after I die like that's that's that animals or that that plants intrinsic you know universal knowledge just to reproduce itself. So in these situations where humans are honestly treated a lot like animals in CAFOs, um you're going to get high reproduction rates. And then they take this and, and go we have to do something. But again, I think you're back to what you said, like they created it. <laughs> they yes, created it, yes. right? They did this. If you look Yeah, at, and that's exactly the point. If you look at Now Ethiopia, they're pointing at these cities, yeah. Remember Ethiopia when we were kids, they showed all the people in deserts with the flies on their face. And, you know, your mom said, if you don't eat your food, they're starving because of you and other nonsensical, illogical leaps like that. Of course, you know, our parents were programmed to believe this stuff, too. But if you look at the history of Ethiopia, it was incredibly fertile and the people had no problem feeding themselves. But they also had a low population and the the population was self-moderating. We decided after World War II, you know what, these people need is help. We, we, we multiplied their population by a factor of about eight, and they deforested their land. They created a desert where there wasn't a desert, and everybody looked at that. You remember the Sam Kennison bit, you know, about, you know, go where the food is, this is a desert. But the reason those people didn't leave is number one, people always say you should leave. Well, they don't leave where they are when things go wrong. Like, it's hard to leave, especially when you don't have much means. But the other thing was, like, those people, up until a point, probably felt like, oh, it'll, it'll come back. Because there were living people who remembered it the other way. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that that's maybe another problem we have, right? So, like, the reason I brought that up is a lot of the stuff I think that you and I think is going to happen, I think there'll be a lot of people just thinking, oh, it's, it's just weather. It'll, it'll come back. And it will, but I think we're talking decades, not, not, not years.
1: Yeah. And, there, and then that normalcy bias obviously extends into the agendas themselves. It's not just the weather that people say, oh, this is kind of weird, but we'll get back to normal next week. It's it's everything. It's it, People expect this pendulum of totalitarianism to swing back at some point. And they're just sort of waiting it out or COVID will will pass at some point. We'll get back to normal. And I think it's very important that people realize right now this is all part of a plan that doesn't involve going back to normal. It's just going to continue failing forward into more and more centralized control.
0: Yeah, my fear with COVID is people say, you know, it'll eventually it'll ebb off and, and and we can go back to normal. Okay, it did ebb off. It has ebbed off. It was never as bad as they said. But we did. Whenever there's a new virus, like humans are the most vulnerable to it. No matter what you do, it's gonna hit them first because they're the most susceptible to it. If we look at the the rate of the virus in the United States of America today, there's no reason for any of the restrictions anywhere to still be in place. Period. The end. Like it doesn't. It's not a thing. It's just not a thing. Have you seen it go back to normal? I haven't. So if, we, if we're already at a state where, based on the epidemiology of the illness, we should be back to normal and we're not, it, it amazes me that people think it, it just will. I, I, I don't see it going back to normal, whatever the hell that means.
1: Yeah, it's just unthinkable to them that the government is not acting in their interest. They would never keep secrets from us. I mean, it's, it's, it's appalling to, to have conversations that end in, well, oh, the government wouldn't do that to us, <laughs> but it still <laughs> happens. Uh, even as we're told directly from the UN, the World Economic Forum, that we will own nothing and be happy, right? They, they're yeah. open about this agenda for neo-feudalism within the next eight years now. It sounds like it's just rhetoric from, you know, the, the, these guys dreaming in their ivory towers, but in fact, it's a long-standing plan for this global takeover of- of all resources, all economic activity, total awareness and control, um, and yeah, while food is it's it's not always, in fact, food is usually neglected as part of that agenda. Talking about it, but um, but yeah, the UN has broadcast for a long time that we should be eating bugs, we should be moving to lab-grown meat in order to save the planet from this global warming emergency. <laughs> We've heard about the uh, the planetary health diet was released by the Eat Lancet Commission, which is pretty clear. It eliminates most animal-source foods. Uh, which is exactly what Bill Gates is parroting, recently saying we should be eating 100% lab-grown meat. And of course he's saying that because he's the guy that's funding impossible foods, yeah. whose stated goal is to end animal agriculture. So that's, that's the agenda for food is to really to make the case that because of global warming and because of pandemics and how risky and dirty and dangerous farms and ranches are, now we, we, we have to, we have to shut it all down, Jack. Yeah. But of course that real reason, yeah, is control.
0: I mean, that is part of the whole Great Reset, right? I mean, that is – I mean, you you bring that up and people kind of like lump it into like David Icke saying that the government is run by lizard people in human suits. Like it's just nonsense. Yet like the same week, I think it was like the New York Times said the Great Reset is a conspiracy theory. Like a front page Mm -hmm. article – I don't know if it was the cover, but it was like when you you blow the fold on the front page – it's a conspiracy. Time magazine had on their cover of their magazine, It's Time for the Great Reset. And, and, like, we're living in this really paradoxical, dystopian world where, like, people will literally let that perception bias and that that, that that normalcy bias, Not it's not like you have to go look for this, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, there's things that people like you and I have been telling people about for a long time, and you have to dig a little bit. You know what I'm saying? You have to kind of like find it. You know, you can find it, but you gotta look for it. This is not <laughs> hidden. This is the World Economic Forum has the great reset on their website, front and center. Time magazine puts it front and center. Other media puts out the whole thing's a conspiracy theory, it's not there. And people believe it. And it is like it's I, I don't know how old you are, but like I remember like super friends and stuff like Bizarro Land, like anti Superman, like you know, like like alternate universe, except it's coexistence.
1: Coexist. Say that again. Coexistence.
0: It's like coexistence. Like there's the instead of having these two parallel universes. Right. You know, like good Superman and bad Superman. You have like this, like the two, the two universes exist side, like at the same place, not even side by side. Like you have people saying there is no great reset while Time magazine has on the cover of their magazine. Here's the great reset Mm -hmm. and you could show it to them and they just, well, it's not real. Yep. Well, I, yep. Same I thing Photoshop Time Magazine and trick them into putting it on the shelves at a thousand booksellers across the country. I did that, really?
1: Right. I think this is a, mind, a, a tried and tested mind control technique. When you've got the media saying the different things out of both sides of their mouth, people just they give up. They give up. It's like well, I don't even know what's true anymore. And you know they're so busy trying to feed their family and and get everything taken care of that uh, they just don't have enough time to sort through it all. But but that's less. Like you said, that's less and less true every day. And I was gonna mention there's you know, the the legal system in the US has this idea of a reasonable person, what would a reasonable effort you know, conclude here and I think over time we've gone from the case where like someone really had to look deeply into these things and put a dot here and a dot there and maybe you could sort of start to connect these things and see the picture but you're still making a couple jumps here and there intuitively yeah. to get there no, we're not there anymore like it's, it's, out, it's on the front page of the World Economic Forum you'll own nothing this is a global neo-feudalism takeover um, and I think by now it's, it's, not, it's just not a conspiracy theory any reasonable person would, uh, would come to the right conclusion here
0: Yeah, I agree, and and it isn't new. I remember when I first discovered permaculture, like, almost 15 years ago now, and I was getting a magazine called Permaculture Magazine from the UK, there was an article in there that fits right in with this, like, this idea was planted a long time ago, and it was about how we should all lease everything, no one should own anything, right, and and the reason was, and of course, you know, when you're making a case like this, you try to make it sound beautiful, like... Like communism. Like the sales pitch for communism is wonderful. The delivery is is, is really the problem where there's all the you know death and destruction and and, and 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 people dying slowly and being shot in the head. Like so what the premise was like, they said, Well, let's take an example. Let's look at something we all buy and think we would always have to buy carpeting. And it was like if you leased your carpet, that would mean when your lease was up, the carpet company would have to come take it back, and therefore they would be responsible for it ultimately. So they would think more about like how to make it reusable, how to make it recyclable, how to make it bio whatever. Right? Like, in other words, they would build a product that can be reused because they have to deal with it. And I was thinking, no, they wouldn't. They'd come up with a cheap way to dispose of it. And they'd make sure it costs you more to lease it than to buy it. That's what they would do. That's how markets work. But I can see how the average, especially young, uneducated person who's been mentally conditioned in our university system would go, oh, that that makes sense. So that's 15 years ago. And what we're seeing now is, like, it broadcasts broad scale. So back then, if I had said that that's what they were doing, like you're saying, a reasonable person would say, you know, this is like one person's idea in a magazine who probably didn't even get paid to write the article, Jack. You're you're jumping the shark. Where today, Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how you can come up to a different conclusion because, like you said, these are not – People that write magazine articles, right? These are people that set global economic policies, being very clear about what they want to do. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and we've seen a lot of the language and ideas that were rolled out during this uh, pandemic from contact tracing, now making its way over to climate tracing, which is Al Gore's... Desire to monitor every greenhouse gas emission everywhere on Earth in real time. I mean, the surveillance grid is being rolled out also right now, and that's another sign that this isn't. You know, this ties back to what you were saying. Like, if if these guys just had better ideas, if they were just innovating genuinely, authentically, then you know, people would say, "Hey, that's a great idea," and they would move to it organically. Yeah. Um, but but it's it's not that. It's it is a takeover. Um, and it's, it's for that reason that even in their own literature, you, need, you read from the Rockefeller Foundation, it talks about how farming is bad and really these new ideas are going to take over. But if, uh, again, they don't leave it there, they then say, uh, you know, in, in the next section, it's like, we have to go turn off these old farmers. We have to strip them of their ability to save seeds. We have to remove animals from them because they know that their ideas are inferior and don't win out in the, in the marketplace of ideas. So and, and this is something that's been done back to, all the way to Stalin, right? When he was dealing with the grains crisis in Ukraine uh, in the early Soviet days, he gave this speech to uh, the University of Red Professors. It was really great. Uh, this section, he comes out. I'm just going to read briefly because it's so telling. That mm. It's like looking at the cycles of the sun and, and saying, oh, that's where we are now. This is the cycle of, <laughs> of the communist takeover, and it's where we are now. Stalin, looking at the grains crisis, says, quote, The way out of this crisis lies in the transition from small, backward, scattered peasant farms into amalgamated large-scale socialized farms which equipped with machinery and armed with the scientific knowledge capable of producing a maximum of grain for the market the solutions lie in the transition from individual peasant farming to collective socialized farming and that is ex- I mean this could be written today right this is this is exactly the same thing as saying oh we need to do away with these uh dirty antiquated farms with their zoonotic threats and now powered by science and technology, we can make communism work better this time. This is nearly 100 years ago, and the yeah. rhetoric is exactly yeah. the same for Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum. It's just stunning when you realize that this is, it's a playbook. It's been done before, and here we are again.
0: Well, and if you want to see how it didn't work, like that was the 20s and 30s, the 1920s and 30s, I guess I have to say now, <laughs> right? And, and I had family that died in the famine in the Ukraine, and... That was all the way back then, and I remember by the late 70s, if we wanted to actually get rid of the Soviet Union, like we said we did in the 60s and 70s, all we had to do was not sell them grain, the whole thing would have collapsed. Without Mm -hmm. U.S. grain in the 1970s, the Soviet Union would have starved to death, right? Like, so... That's how poorly it worked. He's got this great plan. It sounds on paper that sounds like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You have machinery and technology and maximum yield per acre, and what it, well, it resulted in a whole bunch of people starving to death. It resulted in getting rid of all of the people who knew how to grow food, putting in state workers who had no idea what the what the hell they were doing. Um, and yeah, it does sound like today we're going to take a guy that made shitty software. And we're going we're gonna to let his opinion of what we should be growing and how we should be doing it dictate how we feed 330 million people in America. That's, that sounds ex- – you're right. It sounds exactly the same.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's not just a few people. I mean we're talking about the Holodomor where yeah. tens of millions of people die. I mean, this, is, this is a major – you know, it, it bears knowing about this and, and, and knowing that we're going through it again today.
0: It, and that, that word actually as the Ukraine. I can tell you that means basically murder by starvation. That, that's that's, right. that's that was in that's what it means that we will murder the population through starving them out and and that's exactly what they did um, Let's talk about food supply right now because a lot of times when you talk about what's coming, people are like well, that means it might or may not happen or this subjective as to how bad it will be like we said with the minimum like how minimum will it be um, there are food shortages now, right especially in grains and legumes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we're short grains. We're also short protein. You can see prices exploding around the world. That's why countries are sh- starting to shut down their exports and try and keep track of their own food domestically. I do want to be careful and clarify what we mean by shortage because this often people will say that's ridiculous and just turn off their brains uh, when you say there's a food shortage. When I ask this question to analysts and other people in the in, in agriculture, Jack, the answer I invariably get is, well, you never run out of beans, Christian. You just run out of $8 beans. And then you run out of ten dollar beans, mm. and then you run out of fourteen dollar beans, maybe. But by that point, things are starting to get sketchy. You know, people can't afford to eat, feed their animals. Soybeans, so, soy is one of these things, you know, um, that's in everything. Soybean oil, unfortunately, is in a ton of stuff. In uh, if you go to the supermarket, it's really hard to find things that this doesn't uh, play play into. In fact, there was a piece in um, Reuters or Bloomberg rather recently that said the unlikely source of food inflation is vegetable oil, and of course that's soybean oil. Um, so if the USDA is lying about how much we've been producing, and they have been, uh, that keeps prices suppressed. It keeps the prices low. It enables China to start buying up all of our grains over the past few years, which is exactly what they've been doing. And I'm talking about record levels of corn and soybean purchases. Um, so the state of play right now, China and the U.S. have both had some some bad seasons back-to-back over these last couple of years. And so all eyes have been on South America these last few months to see how it, it plays out there. Unfortunately, they've also had a bad season. Soybeans in Brazil were really delayed by a drought early on and then super wet conditions late in the season that meant they couldn't even be harvested from the fields. That means not only did that affect their yield, that also means that they weren't able to plant their saffron, a corn crop, the third corn crop, uh until pretty late in the season and now just this week we're starting to get a sense for the damage there uh the corn yields and the saffron are really really reduced as well so that means that they're not able to make up that difference you know everyone was sort of hoping that oh we could just use south america to sort of catch up on what the northern hemisphere had had these problems here but now it's now we're getting to a dangerous place and you do start to see signs of it countries like i said are shutting down their exports uh trying to control domestic prices, but even more fundamentally, there's changes like China trying to reformulate animal feed to use wheat, which they're also importing at record levels, uh, instead of soybeans and corn. This is an admission. This is an open sign that yeah. things aren't – it's not It's not going to snap back to normal here. This is a lasting situation here. And, and that's not um, sustainable like I said,
0: just for people that don't understand. Like your average protein in wheat that you get today is going to be somewhere between 9 and at the high side, 12%. Okay. Soy is going to average in the mid-30s. It's not a like-kind swap. You can't get the growth rates from your animals, and you can't have the solution of just, we're going to feed them more. And I, I'm i going to go out on a limb here and say what China will probably do and what they're probably doing is some sort of protein extraction methodology where – like. You can feed the animal more protein and wheat, but you're not feeding them straight wheat. You're, you're doing some sort of you know, separation of, of the protein from the carbohydrate to, to boost the protein yield because you can't, you can't do that. Anybody knows that's ever even raised a backyard chicken flock and raised babies, you can't do that. You've got to have the protein for growth.
1: And, of course, they're exploring more Frankenstein-like options. They're trying to engineer a new form of GMO soy that has even more protein in it can be grown indoors, stuff like that. So you can do Um, less.
0: You can feed them less and get the same protein. Okay, so the mm -hmm. other way around.
1: Um, China's also struggling. So beyond grains, there's also um, these words floating around about a global protein shortage. Uh, China had a, a real struggle with African swine fever, about 18 months ago, decimated more than half their swine herd, and they're Mm -hmm. still trying to build that back up, although, of course, now they're doing it. You'll hear this theme throughout the whole talk today. Now they're doing that in modern operations, indoor, Mm -hmm. uh, highly automated animal farms that use Mm -hmm. more soybeans for inputs because they've turned off the family farms, and those guys are now Mm -hmm. trying to find new jobs. Um, African swine fever now threatening the EU and Indonesia, and it's probably just a matter of time until that makes its way into the U.S., on animal feed of some sort. Uh, U.S. as well has been burning through our own frozen meat stocks over this last year. You can look at the charts. It's just a staggering uh, during the, you know, we all know that the meat factories were shut down because of, you know, due to COVID. Mm-hmm. And so there were limited shortages that we did see, like no beef at Wendy's, but it was kind of a fleeting, uh, just a, a novelty thing. We didn't really feel the effects of those meat plant shutdowns because we were eating, literally we were eating into our frozen meat stocks. And now that those are diminished, we don't have that buffer between us and uh, shortages of meat at the supermarket. Um, If the situation in Ukraine, just one other thought here, if the situation in Ukraine goes hot, that's going to be, you know, all bets are off at that point. That's an extreme disturbance to grains exported from the Black Sea area. And just to be very clear, like I've talked about Ukraine, Russia in the Black Sea area, uh, China, Brazil and Argentina in the southern um, hemisphere. These are the the reason I, I... focus on these are these are the bread baskets of the world these are the countries that feed every other country in the world and when they're having problems uh with production or even meeting their own domestic needs you know you see like there was a quote from a guy in belarus one of their ag ministers who's saying hey if if ukraine puts this limit on their exports you are dooming your neighboring countries to starvation and you don't really throw those words around lightly so it's it's again it's something that we need to be pay attention to when, when the big breadbaskets of the world are all having simultaneous crop failures, it's a big deal.
0: Well and if this is what scares me about the the potential for conflict right now and war. If I'm Xi Jinping of China or I'm Putin of Russia and I want to take Taiwan or I want to take the the rest of Ukraine back. Or I want to take more of Ukraine if I'm Putin, maybe not the whole thing. Um mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that you're going to get a better window to do it than right about now. Like maybe you wait a little bit more for a complete and total, you know, mental breakdown of of Joe Biden and you got like maybe you get into a transitional period to, to Harris where things are really in disarray and the U.S. has its own problems and maybe some other shit kicks off. But during this administration, if you're going to move, it doesn't get better. So then the question becomes, are you going to? Like so, if the answer is yes to that, then it's probably going to happen some way, shape, or form. Um, personally, I think that we need to mind our own damn business, and we wouldn't be in all these problems in the first place. Uh, we 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 don't need to be telling the rest of the world how to live, but we have, and every action has consequences. So now we're like entangled in all this, and we're in a situation where, in both instances, the United States has a doesn't mean we'll do it, but we have a legal obligation to defend an ally by treaty. And, and that is that is a nasty place to be in with stuff like this. And then, like you said, the larger implication is, you know, think of it this way. Think of a world leader as the head of a family. Might even be a really bad father, but even a really bad father will generally look at their kids and go, you know what, if i got to climb the fence and club the neighbor in the head to make sure my kid eats tonight, I'm going to feed my kids. And when we start getting into food shortages like that, like the people that will already do evil stuff will justify far more evil to feed their kids or in this case their subjects.
1: Yeah, and it's really hard to say right now, you know, like I I know Putin said you need to turn those destroyers around and yeah. Biden did. So it yeah. doesn't even look like he's going to honor those legal obligations. It's 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 pretty hairy right now. I think you're right that uh the situation is pretty much primed to spark off and of course if one goes, then the, the other, other would probably, probably seize on that opportunity. Yeah. yeah because, oppor- well, he's uh, busy
0: with Putin. I can go over here and take Taiwan like and I think that like people need to understand what that legal obligation is and isn't. So let's say that the shit that's going on in Ukraine right now, and I think this is something people don't understand, and we still have family there, so so I do. The part of Ukraine that borders Russia is not made up of just Ukrainians that want to stay Ukrainians. There are a lot of Russian loyalists in that part of the Ukraine that would prefer to be part of Russia. I know that's hard for people to get their head around. I know that's not what the TV tells you, but that's the, the mix you have. And those people think the best way, to get that to happen is to create a situation where the Ukraine is tempted into actually being taking the first aggression. If that happens, it becomes more of a, well, do we intervene? Then we're required to intervene. We're required to defend an ally. We are not required by the NATO treaty to defend an ally that initiates the conflict. And that's, that's this weird gray zone. But let's say that happens and we're like, well, we're not going to do that. And then, you know, Z sends the freaking uh, jets into Taiwan. Well, now what? It, it's, it's, I, I don't pretend to know what's going to happen there. I just know that, like, what I said yesterday in a total different situation is imagine that you had a, a floor covered in water and you lit a match and threw it on the floor. Like, nothing would happen. But if you, if you put, straw dry straw all over the floor soak it with diesel fuel and throw a couple cups of gasoline on top of it just for the hell of it and you throw a match on there and I think that what the situation we're in is there's no guarantee of the match but that's the floor the floor is like beautiful tinder drenched with diesel fuel and gasoline and it takes a spark and boom
1: Yeah, it's a good analogy, and a lot of people don't understand. This is exactly what it was like—the situation before World War One. It sort of just festered, and everyone was, you know, everyone knew we were right on the cusp of war. But it took that Archduke to, um, to really finally to be the match there. And so I think you're right; we're we're just looking for the match at this point.
0: Yeah, but uh, but try to go over that, think about that for a minute. That's a very astute point, Christian. That had that situation not been where it was, and some guy popped an Archduke the square root of f all would have been the result like nothing people are like oh i'm pissed but like like the idea that you would go into the first truly mechanized global conflict over one dude getting popped not to diminish any human life but we just would you know what I'm saying we wouldn't have done that we had to be in a an agitated dry tender state for that to effectively be
1: the match if that makes sense Yep, that, it was straw and gasoline on the ground. You're exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the analog goes further than that. The Weimar was printing money mm. before and, and sort of enjoying the benefits of that. Everything seemed fine. And then, of course, a couple of years later, it really came home to roost. I think we are repeating that page from that playbook as well um looking at inflation the white house just last week put out a warning about oh don't worry about the inflation numbers they're going to look bad but it's because of base level effects from last <laughs> year's shutdown <laughs> it's just like oh man and you read the bloomberg it just it it laid the cover fire all the other media repeated those talking points and said now you understand that there's nothing to worry about and so yeah. people that read the newspaper then go out into the world and they'll come across someone like us having a, a real rational conversation about inflation expectations and they're like oh you just didn't read Bloomberg you just don't understand what's going on here so it's dangerous they they get like they get inoculated against the truth and that's really dangerous yeah you know what I love the memers and
0: somebody needs to make a meme and take Jen what's her name Saki the the White House Mm -hmm. press uh, secretary and remember Mm -hmm. Baghdad Bob remember Baghdad Bob Mm -hmm. from the invasion of Iraq when like the U.S. tanks are like rolling in the background and he's out there in his beret going there is no Americans in Baghdad like that's, that is literally the administration right now. Like, they're literally a modern Baghdad bomb. Yep. If anybody does that, I want credit. There's <laughs> I want credit in the meme somehow. Put a little JS down in the corner. Um, on this note, like, if all this crazy stuff's happening, like you and I say, surely not everybody's being as stupid as we are. Like, are other countries doing something about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So China seems to know exactly what's going on. They've been buying up Everything they can get their hands on, not just from us. They literally drove Brazil out of be- uh, soybeans. When I say beans, I mean soybeans. Uh, selling those mostly to China. And uh, Brazil now, because they ran out uh, and had a bad season this year, they've dropped their tariffs. This is just last week. They dropped their import tariffs on corn and soy, and they're trying to buy from, their, from Argentina next door because they just they, – literally, they sold all of their food. Uh, Argentina also – put some export limits on, their livestock association petitioned the government and said, stop exporting our grains. We need to be able to feed our animals. Mm. And so they actually did that. Just yesterday Argentina created a registry of beef exports. And of course, you know, registration leads to confiscation thinking here. In this case it leads to limiting beef exports uh, in the in the name of keeping domestic prices stable. Uh you can keep going down that list of bread baskets it's like we did. The Black Sea with their with their poor crop has limiting exports in Russia, Ukraine limited exports, again, at the behest of their Livestock Producers Association. So yes, around the world, and and again, concerningly from the breadbaskets, countries are taking steps to preserve uh, the integrity of their domestic uh, food supplies. We're not, Jack. We are exporting grains to China at record level, beyond record levels. You know, we called it a Trump trade deal, but it was really just the systematic extraction of our commodities here years worth of corn going in a single week it's been insane um you can find some pictures on my telegram of these uh line of soybean shipments destined for china just a a huge flow of these major tankers pulling soybeans over to china same for ethanol they've been buying that at record levels that of course comes from corn so it's just another way of of getting the, the crops out uh, and no, we're not, we're not doing any of that. In fact, Biden has, has launched a comprehensive series of attacks on farming and ranching, mostly guys under the, the net zero emissions, right, tying it back to the climate nonsense. They brought Tom Vilsack back in the Obama USDA head, and he's now charged with creating a racially equitable food system, which is something that flows from the Rockefeller Foundation's Reset the Table, uh, report. They're doing reparations, not just dollars, but some land. Uh, And, and, yeah, the USDA itself under Vilsack has been tasked with creating a plan for net zero agriculture, which is it's it's insane. Really, it it is how they will start to justify the moving of all farms and ranches into indoor operations and into the insect protein, things like this. Biden also launched the 30 by 30 plan. You've probably heard about this. We want to put 30 percent of our land into conservation, 30 percent of our waters. Uh, Just stop. Stop farming it. Stop producing food. Uh, this is something that the U.K. has done as well. Of course, those numbers come from the U.N. plans. The IPCC said we need to do 30 uh, 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 percent, kick the people off, stop farming. All of these things flow down from these agendas. Um, the Biden administration's tax plan, hopefully you've talked about this as well, is it's, it's almost impossible to inherit a family farm because you're taxed on the yes. value yeah. without even selling it. So yeah. it basically forces when, you know, when the farm is being handed down it basically forces your hand to well, have to sell it off.
0: Just on on that, like that has been a problem, but for some smaller farms, you, it's been under the under the the Gabogi for inheritance tax. And then I every time I say anything good about Trump, I have to point out I'm not praising the guy overall. I just I give anybody their props in the right place. He jacked up inheritance tax limitations to where that ceased to be an issue. And what, what Sleepy Joe wants to do right now is take that away. And people always think of like this is like a, a billionaire's tax or something. And who cares? It's the rich people. Well, imagine a farm or a ranch that's been in a family for 150 years. And that family makes a decent middle class income couple hundred thousand a year maybe, right? And that's being spread across, like, you know, dad and a couple sons or something and and a mom. Like, it's they're not living like the Rockefellers or anything like that. But that farm or that ranch is valued at, what, you know, $20 million on raw land acreage price per acre? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, well, dad dies, junior inherits the farm, he gets a tax bill on $20 million. How the heck can he pay the bill?
1: He can't. That's the point. Yeah. Yo, go cash ahead. Complete,
0: complete the dots right there. What happens yeah. next?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're exactly right. These a lot of farmers are land rich and cash poor, and so if if that kind of a transition happens, then you get under this new plan, you get hit with a tax bill for the unrealized capital gains mm-hmm. on your thirty million dollar land. And you have basically – I mean especially lately they've been squeezed economically so hard that you're barely – most farmers are barely able to even make a profit. So it's just completely unthinkable. There's no – basically there is no way to can pay. There's two
0: options and both are bad. There's bad and worse. So bad is if you have no debt on the land, right, Mm -hmm. or not significant debt against equity – You secure a loan and you take a debt-free or low-debt ratio farmer rancher and make them a high debt ratio where they have a high probability one bad year they lose it. The Mm -hmm. second option is, well, hell with it. We're done. They sell it, and then they pay the tax and they keep the differential and they go off and, I don't know, make soap or something and have a hobby farm somewhere. And then that land, you know, who buys it? Do, do you or I go buy that you know twenty million dollar farm? No, we can't afford it. So who buys it? Syngenta, Canagra, Bear, Bill Gates, right? Like somebody in the cabal buys it, and they just keep growing.
1: Yep, Bill Gates is exactly the right now. He's the yeah. largest private farmland owner. So yeah, it's this all funnels the land right into these big big companies and big holders.
0: Um, how do you think we're going to experience these shortages? Like the average person really hasn't seen it yet. Maybe your bag of uh, chicken feed or whatever went up a couple dollars, right? Like that's, you know, maybe you had in, last year you had a period where you couldn't get what you wanted for a month. That's not really a problem. What what comes next?
1: I think it's food prices, and I think we are starting to really. Feel it now. We're hitting that, if you will, that the leg of the hockey stick of food prices. And the mainstream media is even just this past week or so started to acknowledge that. Uh, it, yeah, feed, feed prices are also jumping up. And that's going to push up the price of meat. It's going to push other ranchers out of business. But uh, when you when you take everything we've just talked about and then put it in light of these inflation situation, the larger inflation and destruction of the dollar situation, plus the supply chain unraveling it's it's beyond fair to say that food prices are going to skyrocket in the near future here. And, and they know that. That's why these food banks last year were stocking up to the rafters all year, creating these pandemic pallets, they called them. Yeah. Those weren't used during, you know, nothing about COVID, right? Those, those are still sitting there. They haven't been used yet. They, <laughs> but it's been done in anticipation of these rising food prices uh, pushing food out of the reach of a lot of people and, again, forcing them to come right back and grovel at the feet of the system, yeah.
0: Well, let's do a little rewind back to something you said earlier. I occasionally take notes when something said that's important, and I did this time. Um, you mm-hmm. said something along the effects is that traders will tell you there's no such thing as uh, being out of beans. You're out of $8 beans, then you're out of $10 beans, then you're out of $12 beans, right? Well, you mm-hmm. also said that what they did is they put in these artificial pricing controls. That's not the word you use, but that's what you meant. They artificially kept the price down. And then not only have we kept the price down for, like, American farmers, we kept the price down and sold out. We created an outflow of this commodity that's already in short supply, selling it cheaper than we should. And when you do that, a country like China goes, okay, dummy, I'll buy all you got, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I said yesterday, and I didn't even know this was our interview today because Dorothy does such a great job with the schedule. I I don't even look ahead. I find out who I'm interviewing the morning I'm doing the interview. And it's weird how this fit together. I said yesterday on a different subject that there's never been a time where government has imposed rationing, you know, other than the acute nature of like an immediate war that was unexpected, where they didn't first employ pricing controls. So what happens is the governments say, oh, look, the price of this is going up unfairly. That's terrible. Let's keep the price down. So then they put pricing controls in. And there's direct, like they write a thing and say, thou shalt not sell for more than. And then there's manipulation like they did here, where you manipulate the currency itself, you manipulate the market itself, until you suppress the price. Well, then you don't get what you were talking about, natural moderation of consumption. So when like prices go up in a crisis like a hurricane, that's actually good. It's not really price gouging. It makes people buy only what they need. Well, when you create an artificial floor or I should say ceiling, in the midst of a crisis and people go into panic buying mode, there's no natural moderation of purchasing. So then you get extreme shortage, and then you get what? Rationing. So, I mean, and that's another one of those, you know, Huxley said, we don't learn the lesson. I think people do, but societies don't. Like, it makes me think of another quote, um, Men in Black, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character said something like a, Uh, a person is smart and people are stupid. Like collectively Mm -hmm. we behave stupidly, and I think that's a perfect example of that.
1: Yeah, that's called price rationing, where you would expect when the supply dwindles that the price would rise and that would keep the, you know, when you run out of those $8 beans, some of those buyers are going to say, okay, well then I'll just, you know, hold off till next year or do whatever, grow less animals this year. But, um, but when, yes, when you lie about how much we have in supply until those last five months is when they started just each month, the USDA comes out and says, oh, we don't have those hundred billion, whatever it is. It's
0: just, yeah, yeah, the day of. Again,
1: <laughs> it's a gradual day of reckoning that we've yeah. been going through here, and that's why the, the grain prices are suddenly exploding now that China has finished extracting our substance. Yeah, but uh, and of course you need to throw in here also that the U.S. liquidated our strategic grain reserves under uh, W. Right at the end of W's term, mm-hmm. they signed this thing that said, well, let's just we don't you know this is this is the current year. It's it's, it's in modern times. We don't need to hold food anymore. That's so old school. We can just hold cash, and then if we ever need it, we can deploy it. And even Wikipedia's description of this says that, you know, the U.S. can use that. We can throw around our dollars in to help out a food crisis here or there. But if there were ever actually a global food shortage, then it would, it, it wouldn't help at all, right? It's just some dollars sitting somewhere. There's no food to buy. These countries are shutting down their exports. So that's what we're heading into. And we don't have a lot of strategic grain. No, we don't have any strategic grain reserves. Uh, USDA will often talk about on-farm storage. A lot of that was destroyed in the Duratio last year mm. as well. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a precarious situation, and that's why I think this is one of the most important conversations we can be having.
0: Well, and so people always think of things like corn. That's why we make ethanol is, is renewable and sustainable versus evil oil. Well, if we're having an oil shortage and we have strategic oil reserves that are still in the ground, you can pump more oil and you can refine more oil. And it takes a while, but I mean, you can, within a month or two, you can have more supply. Even an incredibly <laughs> limited commodity like gold. If this price of gold went up $5,000 tomorrow, they'll dig deeper in the ground and there will be more gold. There's a limit to that, but it's a, it's a relatively, you know, guaranteed we can, we can push a button, we can run faster, we can do more, we can make more of this thing. Supply and demand, right? If you don't have a soybean, then you have an entire growing season before you have another one. If everything goes right, if there's a good year, if everything works out, you're still looking at a 9-12 to month minimum cycle before you get a partial correction to your shortage because you have to have a full growing season for the crop to be put in the ground, grown, and taken out of the ground. Right? You can't just say, okay, well, turn up the soybean maker. Turn up the corn machine, right? Like, you can't just run the, 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 uh, the conveyor belts more quickly. And I think we live in a world where people think, and I call it microwave society, right, where everything we could just have more by making more. And we don't make food. We grow food. And mm-hmm. nature has its own timelines.
1: Yeah, the way I like to say that is you can always print money, but you can't print food. Correct. And uh, and you're right. And there's actually a, a DOD, DARPA, like they got together and they said, hmm, food security, this, this might actually be a thing. You know, we spend <laughs> trillions of dollars every year on bombs and yeah. crazy devices and rods of God, but you know, our food is not actually that secure. And this is a pretty big vector here. And they did this huge, you know, of course, they threw lots of money at it and they did this huge study and consulted with experts and the Gates Foundation. And they, all, you know, they pulled in the, the usual suspects. And this, <laughs> I'm not kidding. The report actually concludes we may need to devise a gizmo that could go in you know the answer to food security for americans is to push food production closer to the consumption right so ideally we we could create some gizmo and put it in everyone's house that could just create food for them there and I just, it just blows my mind. A that garden? The, you know, that, exactly. That DARPA, DARPA has, lo and behold, we've come up with the idea of a garden. It's brilliant. It's, we already have that gizmo. A,
0: a, <laughs> a victory garden with a chicken coop and maybe, like, here's a great idea, Christian. I, no one's ever thought of this before. We could have a chicken coop in every backyard. And then two mm-hmm. fenced-in areas, we'll call them runs. And you garden in one one year, and then you put your chickens in the other one, and then every year you flip it. What a great idea. And we'll call it a gizmo. Right, I mean, like nice, yeah, literally, yeah, they've cracker. come up with, "Hey, what do we do in World War II? Yeah,
1: it's it's stunning. Of course, they they earlier in the report they say that we can't do this anymore because of carbon emissions and yeah. it's not scalable. But yeah, that's that's it's it's stunning. What does so, the Bill Gates? Um, f- go ahead. Sorry. What does it What does it look like if they if they get their way? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, what does it's, the Bill it's, Gates
0: it's, farm of the future, uh, making impossible to eat crap, look like?
1: If they get their way, then you know they've already shown their hand. It's these indoor vertical farms like the ones that are funded by Jeff Bezos. He's put some of his money, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that is into plenty, and that is uh, of course able to serve up their products straight to the shelves at Whole Foods, which he also bought. so that you see these billionaires constructing their vertically integrated food supply chains where they own it all. Walmart's doing the same thing where they've got indoor farms pollinated by Walmart patented robotic bees. Um, it's pretty insane. And to it would all just be crazy people doing crazy things if, again, if it weren't for the fact that the regulatory apparatus is slowly pushing, nudging everyone in that direction. So the USDA has a proposed rule right now that requires the GPS coordinates of every piece of lettuce that you sell. And you're not allowed to sell that lettuce unless we have that providence. The complete data, you can put it in a spreadsheet or a blockchain. We need to know where it was grown, where it was harvested, when it was washed, everything, when it was packaged. Um, Another example of the way that they're creating an environment that's hostile to traditional farming and ranching uh, and that that really is bespoke, that that speaks to the need for this move to the indoor vertical farms. Uh, Just a couple weeks ago, the FDA declared that there was an E. coli outbreak on a farm. And and in their dealing with this issue, they issued a finding that said this is actually – this E. coli outbreak was a reasonably foreseeable hazard because they were grown outside – and there were cows on a neighboring farm. And so this is actually, this is re- it's really dangerous, Jack. This is codifying this idea yeah. that traditional farming is dirty and dangerous. You can't do it that way anymore. You need to move it indoors. You need to move it into the uh, DNA libraries. You know, Gates is also funding a company that is literally, they, they talk about, I mean, it's not a surprise because Bill Gates is one of the biggest funders of a lot of those seed libraries where they've taken heirloom genetics and sh- shoved them into a uh, you know, a, a vault underneath the ice. But um, he's also funding a company that's going out and cataloging DNA from all these animal species, and then they're synthesizing lab-grown meat by combining different, you know, like, oh, what if we mix a little bit of penguin with some woolly mammoth? Oh, it's, it's got a really great mouthfeel. I really like the, you know, it's got a better <laughs> protein, and the, the fat doesn't, so they're just, it's, it's complete defiling of, of God's creation as they they do whatever they want. Um, that is, that's the technocratic vision of food. And we don't need to speculate here because they've openly discussed all of these sorts of things in their UN documents, in the Eat Lancet, uh, diet, in the Rockefeller Foundations, talking about how we need to move away away from outdoor, uh, dirty, dangerous farming and ranching. The risks of zoonotic.
0: Yeah, especially animal fat is fat. It's like the key to, to human health. Like we have millions of individual case studies, basically, of people that have improved their health, gotten rid of Countless autoimmune, type two diabetes, etc., by eating a primarily fat-based animal fat-based diet uh, with limited, you know, plant fats that are, you know, like avocado and things like that, uh, which is everything against what they want. And what they're doing again, from what you just said, the classic move of the state: the truth sells a lie. So I'm not opposed to indoor vertical farms. I'm opposed to all the shit you explained that they can do with it once they have it, right? But I think that like short-term, high-dollar, mineral-rich crops can be grown indoors at a good profit, and there's, you know, room for the individual grower to do that. When you start growing things like soy and corn and grains indoors, you're basically ignoring the laws of thermodynamics and the laws of energy and entropy. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I don't... I do think it can be done eventually profitably, but it still doesn't make sense. We can do a lot of things that are profitable in our fake world that don't survive an energy audit, right? And I think that's where you're going there. And I, when I started digging into vertical farming and all, I'm like, you know, this is a way side hustle type money can be made, et cetera. If you think about microgreens people, that's, that's what they're doing on a smaller scale. But then mm-hmm. when I started looking at, well, what's the plan? And the plan yeah. is, well, how do we grow trees indoors, are you talking about, right? Like, I what? Uh, yeah, how do we grow wheat indoors? How do we create a wheat that only grows, you know, six-inch stalks and one-foot heads, right? And, of course, what do you use to sell it to people? The dream of space exploration. Well, we're, we're really doing this, Christian. We're really doing this because we're going to have to be able to grow bread on Mars. You know, don't you want your 3D-printed heart when you need a heart transplant from all the crap we're going to feed you? Well, we're going to need to go to Mars to figure out how to do that. Like, that's, like, is insane as that sounds, if you watch the thing you're referring to with, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy, the whole thing that they put together to sell their own idea, that's what they're saying. Like, mm-hmm. we'll be able to 3D print you a new kidney, since we have a dialysis, you know, clinic on every street, because we're going to go to Mars and grow this little wheat. Well, they really want to grow all this stuff indoors, like you said, not just because they can, but because it will enable them to have total, complete... Control of
1: society, mm-hmm. and they'll make it illegal to do anything else. Is the other half of that? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, what do you think happens with ranching and animal agriculture? What about all of us that are like we're not, we're not doing this? And you can say you're making it illegal, but there's a point where you start looking at the wrong end of an AR-15. Like we are going to continue to build regenerative farms. We're going to continue to to, to work with animals because. You know, I've I've on record saying many times you cannot restore human damaged large scale ecosystems without animals. You can't do it. It's not possible. You can sheet melt, sheet mulch, you know, a tenth of an acre backyard, and you can make it incredibly productive using organic matter that you bring in as an input. If you want to restore 40, 400, 4,000, 40,000 acres, you need animals. So we can't fix it without animals, and you're saying they don't want to let us use animals.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They want they want it, it to end. They want it to go the way of the dodo bird, and they've had that plan for generations, even back in the 1920s. Lord Birkenhead, who was a UK statesman, said that uh, agriculture by 2020, in fact, he said, it will be nothing but a rich man's hobby if it exists at all. And that's why they're they're forcing farmers. It's not just incentives. The 3030 plan gives out. They're forcing farmers, paying them to to stop farming. Uh, there was a there was a. I I just did a report on um, some Croatian farmers that are sort of fighting back against this. And yeah, I think to your point will be turned into the extremists and they'll use the climate agenda to do this they'll say it's so it's you know the, the, uh, it's it's dirty and dangerous from zoonotic threat there's too much risk of a pandemic to raise animals we've already seen a lot of that narrative going on with the 17 million mink that Denmark killed sort of setting the stage in people's minds like oh if there's an outbreak in animals then we have to do that we see that happening with the bird flu right now uh, every week you can see somewhere else in the in the world, has a a purported outbreak of bird flu, and they go around and they just kill off all the chickens. The UK actually was going door to door around these big poultry factories, gassing people's backyard flocks. I had a couple reports of that, and I just couldn't believe it. So I actually put in a FOIA, and they confirmed that they were doing that. They said, we're just following orders. Here's the link to our uh, policy document on our website, .uk, that says, this is how we're going to control outbreaks of bird flu. We're going to go around and gas people's chickens.
0: Murdering with gas and... The response to are you doing it is we're just following orders. I know it's chickens, yep. not people, but if that doesn't stand the hair up on your neck, check your pulse. Be sure yeah, you haven't already had a freaking you know, uh, cybernetic brain installed or something. Like make sure that you are actually a living human being. If you understand anything at all about World War two and the term we're just following orders, cause that should scare the shit out of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that's and, and so this plays into why they're uh, the, the push to register livestock, to register animals. British Columbia just uh, passed this new thing that says we want you to we don't care if it's bees in your garden. You now need to come register all animals uh, here with us. And I was going to mention this Croatian thing. There was actually a bit of pushback because you know Yugoslavia. It's not been that long since they had Tito and the socialist regime that came in, and they did. Uh, less than 100 years ago, a complete ag called it the ag census. We just want, we just want to know, we just want to know who's yeah. grown food so we can find it and, and help. We do always from the government. We're here to help. But of course, shortly after doing this agricultural census back in the days of Yugoslavia, the communists came through and kicked people off the land and redistributed. And did this, you know, it's the same, it's the same story as we mentioned with Stalin, yeah. over and over. Um, but the uh, Croatians uh, remember that they were, you know, their families were there. And so now that they're being asked to take part in the EU Agricultural Survey, and now that the EU Farm to Fork, which is just their version of the Rockefeller Foundation's Reset the Table, it all flows from the UN documents, like we said. Uh, the EU Farm to Fork is actually, although it gives lip service to trying to promote indigenous food production, blah, 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 what they're actually doing is creating new regulatory structures that keep farmers from saving their seeds and then selling them or sharing them and that is how you know this this croatian article was just so great because these um farm activists i guess you would say just came yeah. out and said you can't do this this is who this is who we are we've always yeah. and it's a great rundown like we've always had like one village has sort of a, a stock of carrots and you you know the next village will have a different one and yeah. if you go around they they may be those are turned short and purple and ours are long and orange but you can go and get seeds from these different villages and put them out there and have incredible biodiversity much more resilient it's better for your own health and nutrition because of the biodiversity that comes with all of this ways that things have been traditionally done but no it's it's gone now you can't you can't even save your seeds and distribute them anymore under the eu farm to fork regulations so it's not just bad for farmers It's it's a fundamental rewrite of humanity this is who we are of our culture and our history our diet is our is our culture. Our holidays are tied to the planting and the harvest calendar and the celebrations, right? But this is all. If you're if you're perpetrating a transhumanist agenda, then yeah, you've you've got to do that. You've got to seek to divorce humanity from the land and from our food, and that's uh, that's what's going on right now.
0: How does America manage to be so resilient to as much of this and, as as we are? And this is not like some false pride, you know, hero patriot bullshit. This is. A serious question. I have my own answer to it, but I'm interested in yours. And what I mean by that is I have no doubt the people in charge would like to be as far in America as they are in the EU. They're not. And most of the horror stories that we hear about in the EU or even Canada, the reason it's so hard for an American to fathom is you look out your window and go, that's that's not happening here. And a lot of the stuff that they they got done, even all the way back into the 1970s in in you know the EU, Britain, uh, the larger Commonwealth of, of Britain, they have not been able to get done here. I mean, I don't think people know, but like, you need a license to own a television set in England, like that's a thing. Like, and if you have two televisions, you need two licenses. Um, I guarantee you, they like, I mean, they want to license everything that way they can control it and make sure we're not being stupid and. You know, behaving like free beings. How have we managed to, to? I mean, I know we've fallen a long way, but compared to the, a lot of the rest of the developed world, especially, we haven't. What What is it about America that's that's held things back as far as it has?
1: That's a big question. Um, I would I would venture that you know there's an ethos, there's a culture of resisting tyranny. Uh, in america right that, that ties back to our origins we talk a lot about freedom yada 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 and um, and i think so when there's something that is just superficially not um, aligned with that that it gets resistance and what that means is that they've had to use more surreptitious means like they've introduced the gmo crops and you go to the store and you can't find anything healthy anymore if you just go to like you know one of the the, the, the big if you go to safeway or kroger or whatever it's really hard to find something that hasn't been adulterated somehow by these big food companies. So it's more that it's taken – I think the tyranny has been advancing in different ways, sort of staggered in different vectors around the world. It just takes sort of different forms, but it's all absolutely going in that same direction. Well,
0: and I, I think it has a, a lot to do with not the party but the concept of republicanism. Like one thing we have that a lot of these other countries don't is what happens is Texas is different than Arkansas or California or Pennsylvania – far more so than it is in Germany, which is a fairly large country with its own provinces. But So, like, you could have Merkel basically come out and set COVID policy for all of Germany. And she did, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Trump nor Biden gets to do that in America. I think it's our size, our form of governance, and I think there is a natural resistance. I also think it's the fact that they talk about those of us who are pro-gun as though we're crazy and this idea that we would ever stand up against tyranny with guns is just nonsensical fantasy or whatever. Pitchforks, right? And torches scare tyrants. And I think when you have like 55 million people in this country that own some form of small arms, that's a lot of pitchforks and torches. And I think there (laughs) is some fear of that, but I don't think it causes, well, we're not going to do it. I think it causes exactly what you say. Okay. How do we do this? Well, you infiltrate the education system and you convince the children of today that are graduating and going off to university through Zoom now instead of physically, their parents are evil. Right? Like, I had a young kid at my workshop recently and he's homeschooled. His dad's a teacher that quit. And somebody said, he. they were talking about homeschool and school and he the, the guy said something like, well, they teach, you, they teach you to hate your parents in school. And this kid's pretty mm-hmm. smart for a 16-year-old. You could tell, like, he didn't know how to answer, but he knew it wasn't quite right. And so I kind of interjected. I said, well, I don't think they, ha- they teach you to hate your parents. They teach you to hate your parents' values. And then mm-hmm. once you hate your parents' values, they let nature take its course, and eventually you come around to hating your parents because you hate what they stand for. And that's because you let somebody else raise your kids. So, like, to me, that's one way they do this. Another way they do this is you mentioned GMO. They didn't just say, you know what we're going to do. We're going to switch to GMO and put it in your food. They effing lied When they started growing it, they said they weren't. Then when they said, well, we are, they said what? Well, it's only for animal feed. And then like five years after they said that, it's like, well, it's been in the food supply for four and a half. (laughs) Like, so now it's already there, and nobody died, so it's okay. And then the average person is, you know, more worried about how many Big Macs they can shove in their face. You know, and it's okay because they had a Diet Coke to go with it. That they just, eh, whatever, I don't have time for that. And they go on. And so they've used... Where we have a natural spirit of resistance, they've come at the apathy side instead. Like, we'll just slowly, like, even though it's not a real thing, the boiling frog analogy, they've just kind of slowly made these changes over generations instead of, like, in Europe, they just decided, well, we're just going to do this now.
1: Yeah, uh, yes. To date, I think you're, you're correct. And I think we've also turned the corner now into, you know, what they talk about up leading up to 2030. It's the decade of action. Yeah. And we're all going to be feeling the vertigo of this rapid changes to our food system and to everything about our way of life. They're marrying, um, this new medical martial law state into the food system because it turns out nutrition, it does matter what you eat. And so this is now a public health crisis, too. Um, and that's coming into uh, education, even like they're going, going into the schools, putting kids on blockchains. So the prison is being constructed uh, by these bars that are coming in from all directions. And part of their game is to keep us from realizing that these bars are all somehow designed to fit together perfectly around us in this perfect surveillance uh, technocratic prison planet of the of the future but um but they're definitely it's it's all in the open right now and it's it's moved from a um gradualism and nudging to a well, here we go it's all up to 2030 and it's all for climate change and hold on here we go guys
0: so what do we do right because this is a solutions oriented show we, we we talk about problems because we have to but what is our solution how do we fight back
1: yeah, now we're talking. This is the this is the, the most important part of the conversation. First of all, I'd say you know keep listening to Jack Spearco. I I appreciated your show on how to grow your own chicken feed. Um I hope this conversation has helped to show that, you know, I, I know you said that you think some of my conclusions are extreme viewpoints. I respectfully disagree. I think these are open agendas at this point. It's not my viewpoint. These are long standing agendas that are well funded, they're being executed rapidly. But, um, but yeah, you've been hammering on reducing our dependency on these broken systems for a long time. So thank you for that. Keep that up. Um, what do we do now is, is, uh, as it becomes, you know, we just said it's turning the corner. It's becoming an acute emergency facing a decade of action. It's no longer the, if things get worse or maybe they don't, it's, it's, we're here now. And so one obvious answer by this point in our conversation is grow food. We've already talked, both of us have talked about this for years. Um, start growing food, start doing what you can to raise animals. But, uh, stepping back, looking more broadly at this inflation situation, I think we can reframe that as move yourself from consumption to production. If food prices are exploding, yes, you could stock up on stored food. You could it be even better it would be to invest the money while it's still worth something into a garden. Move those dollars, not just into food, but into the production of food. Okay, lumber, same thing. It's exploding. Should we just stock up on wood? It's kind of bulky, but maybe we can shove some some in the shed. Or should we buy a wood mill? I know they're pricey, but with the current lumber prices, it's going to pay for itself. And that makes you the producer of the commodity instead of the person who's trying to chase after it with rapidly devaluing dollars. You're not just a slave to some job that's paying wages that aren't going to keep up with the price of commodities. You are the commodity. You name the price. I think that's you really want to put yourself on that side of the equation in this situation. And then you just think that way for everything, right? Stock up on medicine? Yeah, you could. Or you could look more at growing herbs and making tinctures and become your neighborhood pharmacy. What about eggs? Yeah, you can stock up on egg powder. Or you could get some hens, and then you could have eggs for yourself going forward and have them for your neighbors. That's all stuff you can barter with. Honey is another example. The U.S. actually imports the vast majority of its honey. And so I just uh, picked up a couple of hives because I wanted to be able to produce honey, especially with the, the way ships are lined up outside the ports just waiting to dock right now and the supply chain is collapsing. That honey's not going to get in any more than any of these other goods we need are. So, um, yeah, with a couple of hives, you can get 60 to 80 pounds of honey per year, dep- depending on your nectar flow. And then you just keep going with this kind of thinking. What about your animals? What about fabrication? If we can't get parts to replace um you know we have tractor parts and car parts that aren't coming in anymore well if you've got a 3d printer maybe you can bridge that gap a little bit so that's that's one part is move from consumption to production and i do think that would be if this were just an organic economic downturn that we needed to weather the storm i think that would be a good enough answer but recognizing that all this other conversation we've had about the agenda, about their goals, and their are uh, using legal and regulatory structures to shut down traditional farming and ranching and take over all resources. Now it's not enough just to try and produce things because they're going to shut it down at some point. Now we have to uh, fight back, just like the Croatian farmers and the French farmers. We can't allow this to move forward because if the cabal wins control over the food production, they, they really that's endgame. They win. There's a reason... Um, Mollison, Bill Mollison, one of my favorite permaculture quotes is when he said, um, there's something inherently seditious about permaculture, isn't there? Because you can't control someone who doesn't need you. So this is an all-hands all call to action. We need to start growing food. We need to move from consumption to production. And we need to get really busy spreading the word and defending local systems, local food systems and local economies. Um, what do you think about that?
0: I completely agree. I'll add one major thing to this that I think is going to be incredibly important if you want to like actually succeed doing it: strategic mm-hmm. relocation. Mm-hmm. When you look at Agenda 21 and now evolved in Agenda 2030, this is true all over the world. But because of the earlier conversation about how America has been so resistant to a lot of this stuff, specifically in America, they went, you know, we just can't, you know, bribe the president and a few congressmen, and get this done in America. Like, going from Nebraska even to Kansas is like going to a different country, let alone going from Nebraska to Texas or from Texas to New Mexico. Like, you've got to take a different approach. So you know this very well. I've heard you talk about it. They went the local government route. City zoning, city planning, and uh, working in conjunction with NGOs, right, non-government organizations. So Mm -hmm. instead of trying to put this plan into place in America, I know since Texas is full of a bunch of people that will shoot you in the face, where won't they? Oh, Austin. So let's go to Austin, and let's build a local plan in Austin to fix all the dirty, environmental, crazy, bigoted, right-wing, you know, racist people who want to eat steak, uh, let's outlaw, because they actually outlawed in Austin proper real barbecue doesn't exist anymore because the smoke is bad. Mm. Like, that, that's Ugh. a thing. That actually happened in Austin. If you came to Fort Worth and tried to do that, they will kill you over brisket in Fort Worth. I'm just gonna say it, it'll happen. No, I'm not kidding. That's not even a joke, even though it is kind of funny. People will kill you in Fort Worth over brisket. Like, you're not taking brisket away. Um, so we'll go out all the soft underbelly. And then we'll move into, like, so then you move into, like, if you're going to move in Texas, like, where do you go from Austin? You go from Austin to Dallas and its northern suburbs with what I call trophy wives because all they do is shop for a living and you can go see them. Like, if you go to Starbucks, on the first day it goes below 60 degrees in Texas. They're decked out in $10,000 worth of clothes that look like they belong in in, uh, Aspen or something. Like, so you go there next. You hit that liberal underbelly and then you infiltrate you know, Plano and Richardson and uh, Addison and all those cities up there. And you go to San Antonio and you look for the same kind of underbelly and you start doing that all across the country. And that's Texas where it's hard. So if you go do that same model in, I don't know, Vermont, where everybody wants to be green, even though it's like one of the greenest places in the world. you What you do, leave it alone. You've been doing a great job for 200 years. No, we got to fix it, right? So Mm -hmm. they take this localized approach and if you want to know how fast it's going to move where you are, look at COVID. That's the only good thing about COVID. It gave us an absolute clear lens in America where the most rapid advancement of tyranny will be locally. You can literally look at st- whole states and go, "Yeah, there's a handful of states that might make sense." And then you can look within those states and go, "And okay, don't go to Travis County if you're in Texas." Right? Don't don't do that. And so to me, not only do you use that as your macro, and then your micro, if you move, move to a place that is unincorporated. Remove a layer of governance from your life. So generally you have your local, then your county, then your state, and then your federal. Those are your hierarchy of regulations moving up. Most people think of small Small government, and I don't mean like in the libertarian model, I mean in smaller body of government is least oppressive. So like your city government is less oppressive than Joe Biden. Totally the opposite, right? Because all you can do at a lower layer of government is add. Like there's no such thing as a city ordinance that nullifies a federal ordinance. It doesn't work that way, right? So the only way that people can justify their existence, you know, as a town council member is more restrictions, more regulations, right? That's all they can do. So you gotta like get out of there. You get out into we call out in the county here to a place where you're dealing with the county government, and you want to be in a place where the county government's not acting like a city government and they have limited resources, so that they can't really get their arms around what's going on out in the county. I mean, I've talked to sheriff's deputies here, and they're like, "Dude, until you're cooking meth and we can see it from the road, we we don't we literally couldn't do anything if we want. We don't have time. And mm-hmm. so I think we need to relocate into those strategic areas. And I've called them neutral zones and people get the wrong opinion like, like the government's actually gonna like declare them such. I just think you're getting into a point where how do you, how do you control people here? And the answer is you can't. And these, these sleazeballs, they want to control all of society. They're also not stupid like we talked about earlier. So the plan is we'll move as many of them as we can into areas where they can be controlled. And if we control 90%, we're good. If you want to be the 10%, you've got to get away from the 90. You've got mm. to get away from the neighbor that's going to rat you out, right? Your neighbor needs to be cooperative, not adversarial, right? And so I think that you take everything you said and then picking your place is critical. It's absolutely critical, or you're going to be the guy that they come in and they raid the pig farm with the guns, like they did in Michigan a few years ago. Like That will be you if you're not in the right place. And I don't think it's a guarantee, but... When you when you go to war, it's incredibly important that you choose the time and the place of the battle or you're more likely to lose. That's Sun Tzu, right? Mm-hmm. You got to pick the right place for this battle or you might as well not even fight it because you don't fight a war unless victory is assured or at least possible. And I think if you try to do this in downtown Dallas, you might as well set your own farm on fire.
1: Yeah, you just don't have the support. Yeah,
0: there's no way it's not going to happen. Like it's going to be it's going to be the first place. It's like it's like I know I'm going to help the Japanese resist at the end of World War II, and I'm going to I'm going to take my stand on the hospital rooftop in Nagasaki. Like that's (laughs) what you're doing. If you go into like I'm going to create an urban farm in Austin, I I think it's a wonderful idea. I'd love to see it succeed. But that's what you're doing. You're standing on top of the hospital that they dropped the bomb on. the last great act of defiance, sure, but I'd rather win than be defiant. Or at least have a chance, you know what I mean? Have a chance to win.
1: Yeah, I I think, I mean, clearly you're right. I do think that we that we have to be a little bit cautious with the whole vote with your feet mentality because it does lead to a situation where all of the, you know, at an individual level, you don't want to be, you know, in one of those neutral counties in texas or idaho or wherever we've seen right over the last year second amendment sanctuary states have started to stand up so Mm -hmm. you you do get a sense of where like people are moving self-selecting to be with others that have those same values and that means they're more likely to defend their neighbors and their communities when it when it comes to that Um, the only you know the danger there jack is i think that like california is a great example of where a lot of people just left because it was getting crazier and crazier but that means that now they have complete run of the state and it's 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 like a cancer that just sort of feeds into the rest of the country. In fact, when Biden talks about some of these plans or the thirty by thirty thing, he says, "Well, it's working so well in California, so now we're just going to graft it on to the to the rest of the nation, even as California is like burning literally in a number of ways." Um. So so I do think that for people that can't move, it's not the end of the world. Stand up where you are. And and just one other thing that that, that bears qualifying here is you said that you can't ever regulate. You know, local municipalities can't ever fix. The stuff that's being done above them, I think that's not. I don't know that that's entirely true. You know, look at Wyoming House Bill 155, where they actually said during the middle of last year, Christian, hey, that's we a need state.
0: To... Christian, that's a state.
1: That's not a. Yeah. That's not a.
0: That is. Show me where a city or a county ever even got close to successfully nullifying a higher government's ordinance one
1: time. Okay, well we're going from a state to a federal law here. Where they carved up okay, the exemption. I agree on, yeah. a, on
0: a state state pushback under the ninth and tenth amendments sure within a state if you go to a liberal sanctuary city you are done there is nothing yep. that city and even even a conservative city right or even a very rural independent minded city government it's not a thing we have a, a supremacy system within our system of governance and the only lower body that can effectively push against an upper body is a state against federal. I totally agree with you there.
1: Don't I think we should also give credit to the constitutional sheriffs. You know, Sheriff Mack is one example where he did defend a county level against some federal overreach. So it's it's rare and it's difficult, but um,
0: that's also. But I don't think we should that's just. Also, that, that, yeah. Actually, that proves my point, right? Because the county that that guy's in is exactly the opposite of the kind of county I'm saying to get away from, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that. It's also not an ordinance, right? That's that's actually he was when county sheriffs do that, they're generally standing under state law when they do it. All I'm saying is if you have a town council, right? If you have a town mm-hmm. council, if you have a a city, you know, a city council, if you have a mayor, right? When you think of that body of government, there isn't anything that they do, especially in practice, other than ad regulation. That's what I'm saying to get away from. I'm not saying necessarily leave your state. I'm saying if you're in these liberal cities, you're not going to get anything except more restriction. You're not going to get anybody defending
1: you. It's not going to happen.
0: If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I I, I'm delineating between the two. I don't even think we disagree. I think we're explaining it differently.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say I, I, I can't come up with any reason anyone should move into a – a sanctuary city. Um, yeah, it's just they've already already lost the battle there. It's dangerous, but um, but but yeah, I just I don't think we can give up on trying to get local economies spun up and um, and focusing on local local efforts.
0: Well, I agree. I agree. Just where like so yeah. Even like if you picked your two best states for how or three, I would say because South Dakota is small, but probably did better than Texas. Like Texas, Florida, and uh, uh, South Dakota. I've probably been the most resistant to these draconian COVID regulations. But if you're mm-hmm. going to move to Florida and you're going to choose Dade County, go to L.A. I mean, it, it's not much different. They, they have all the Looney Tune um, restrictions that are in California are in Dade County, Miami, right? If you go to the rest of the state, it's not. And I, that's, that's what I mean, like the state level. And then, yeah, man, you, you, you hit on a very important thing there, building up local economies like, that is, that is key, and here's why I'm an optimist in this. We can't make a logical case to the indoctrinated anymore. Uh, Vin Armani refers to this as the dim age, right? Like, emotion and uh, symbolism lead people. They, they walk around wearing this talisman that is a surgical mask that doesn't do anything, and a box it comes and says it doesn't work, but they believe it anyway because Anthony Fauci told them on the idiot box that it does, and it feels right, so they do it. The one thing we have in regen ag is that on our side, in that you can take a you don't have to explain it, you can take a piece of land that literally looks like degraded desert, and in about five years you can put two pictures side by side and you can make a case with that imagery that you could never make with the most impassioned and logic and fact filled speech in the world. If you want to get somebody to garden, feed them food out of your garden, let them taste it. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that's that's where we need to be doing these things because I think it's like that's our one play actually is to so demonstrate the superiority of what we're doing that it's difficult to argue with.
1: Yeah, so, so exactly. So do it. Lead by example. People will see the fruits of your labor. They'll want to get involved. Plus, you'll have extra seeds if you're saving seeds. You can get them up to the one. You know, Jack. I just want to say that one of the reasons I think that they are so gung ho on going very quickly, right? They they told us we're going to feel vertigo as we take over our food supply, is because food is one area where we really can make a meaningful, impactful Mm -hmm. difference by starting to get our hands dirty. Um, The 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 production, not just of food but of seeds, especially, is so prolific that one season in if you just save up seeds from a few plants you literally are in a position where you can go and and give those seeds to all of your neighbors they're going to perform better for them than the seeds they would buy online if they can still buy them online um this is this is an area where you know it's just not that difficult for us to feed our communities or else humanity wouldn't have made it this far and i think that's why they have to do this in such a you know, like we were saying, they've lied to us and they've they've done things surreptitiously for as long as they can, and now they're just trying to pull the hood over the over us and shove us in the van real quick. But um, <laughs> those of us that are already listening to this conversation and already taking steps are well positioned to um, share seeds and, and methods and compost or whatever you know whatever our neighbor, neighbors need to get growing, we can give them that hand up and uh, like I said, make a meaningful difference here. So I think that's the good news here.
0: Well, I, I agree and I think you hit know on something really important there about seeds and plants and the ability to propagate. It is something you can afford to give away. So let's say I did get that sawmill and I started building some sort of thing. I don't know, cabinetry or whatever. Can I give a, a set of cabinets to my neighbor if I, if I have enough time to build an extra one? I can. I can. I can't afford to give my, all my neighbors, my whole town, a, even one cabinet or even a door for their cabinet, right? There's a, there is a significant labor, material, and energy cost to the production of almost everything useful to human beings. That is true of seeds, except it's so natural in, in the way that energy is utilized. A plant is a giant solar panel that collects. And, and so how many people can I afford, like I have this, this, this particular uh, pepper that I grow how many people can i afford to give a dozen seeds at the end of my season of that pepper to and i don't i've never done the math but the the true number if i saved every seed from every pepper we cut open and used is astronomical from one guy growing you know 30 pepper plants like the amount of commodity That not only can I make part of the economy by selling, but I can literally afford to just go here. Is insane, and it is one of the greatest weapons um, that that we have. In one of my presentations on permaculture, my final slide was called "Weapons of Mass Production," Mm -hmm. and and one was seeds, and the other was plant propagation. You know, if you look at something like a mulberry tree, which is a really high energy. Plant. It's not only a berry, but the leaves of the white mulberry, because of all the work that was done with silk production in, in China, are one of the highest protein yields per acre you can get as fodder to feed goats or chickens or uh, uh, cows or anything like that. Uh, it was very heavily used at one time before everything went to grain and cafos. With one mulberry tree and a $5 bottle of rooting hormone, I can literally make and give away a thousand trees a year without even working hard. It's literally cut, dip, stick. And so to me, these are hard skills, seed saving, plant propagation that every single person listening to us today should be learning and practicing and utilizing. And if you can't find someone to give it away to go make a thousand mulberry trees and go to any place you can get away with it and stick them in the ground in, in, you know, stick them in the ground in late fall when they're going to go dormant. And if you put 1,000 out and 200 survive, that's 200 trees that are resources now that weren't there. And it literally costs you a few hours of your time. And I don't know anything else we can do that with. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. But I don't know anything other than seeds and plants that we can literally produce in astronomical quantities as an individual and distribute at low to no cost.
1: Yeah, exactly. I've been doing that same thing. That's great to know about mulberries. I've been doing the same thing with figs because oh, yeah. I learned a couple years ago they're just it's ridiculously easy. You make a little fig cutting, it turns into a tree. And so this past year I did that with a couple hundred cuttings. Good and now I've you. got hundreds of trees. And and uh I did it just to I mean, who doesn't want a hundred trees, right? And so yeah. yeah, so you can walk around now, they're so uh drought resistant that you can sort of Put them in, like you said, right before the wet season here, and they'll make it through and get enough established that they'll make it through the dry season. Some of them will make it through the dry yeah. season, and then there's just figs coming around. This is the way the world should be. You just walk outside and there's food growing everywhere, so there's we can so all help. So many like that, tr- man.
0: There's like goji yeah. berries are one of the most nutraceutical plants on the planet. If you cut, like this is the time of year to do it when they're in that green soft stem. You cut them, stick them in wet soil, they grow. Like it's like a fig. It, like it even you don't even need the rooting hormone. Like it just goes like there's so much and people just need to learn like I think everybody could pick like five things that are easy to propagate for them that do well in their climate and we could literally change the face of food and I think we need to think more than food I I don't know if what you think about this but like food fiber medicine like we can grow all these things Mm on food is incredibly important food's the one that like if you don't have it today you have a problem but Like, we can grow our own fibers. We can grow our own medicines. And I'm sure you've looked at the work like Brad Lancaster's done in uh, Tucson, Arizona, where they've literally created neighborhood economies Mm -hmm. in in a desert. Essentially, the number one thing they did was they cut holes in the curbs on the side of the street and redirected the rainwater. And they transformed an entire neighborhood by doing that. And I'll just point out, as a proud anarchist, it was illegal when they did it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I think we need more stuff like that, man.
1: Yeah, and, and it will – if it's not already illegal, you can tell that the way things are moving, they will turn these into black markets, and that's because they they fear it. That's because what you just said is so true that this is how we can actually keep these things from rolling forward. So, yeah, a, a, again, that's, that's why this conversation is a call to action. This is in all of our hands. Whatever your experience and background is, um, it, it's time to bring that to the table. We all need to be a part of creating and bolstering and defending our local economies, our local food systems – all of this.
0: Well, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. Way longer than typical, but I don't care. That's great. Um, this is probably an interview that should have happened five years ago, and I'm glad that we finally got you on. We'll definitely bring you back anytime. time. Uh, people definitely need to look into your work and follow you. Where can they find you? How can they learn more? All that good stuff. And just if you're driving in your car, do not get in a wreck trying to write down what he's about to say. I will put all the links in the show notes today.
1: Thanks, Jack. I've enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you, uh, you having it. Yeah. You can find me on iceagefarmer.com. That's my own site. And, uh, I do still have somehow a YouTube channel that's still up, but, uh, <laughs> but iceagefarmer.com is where I will be no matter what. And, uh, I'm also publishing a lot on Telegram. That's t.me slash iceagefarmer. moved there after getting booted off Twitter, but that's just a nice sort of, the, the big stream of all the updates as I get them. It's more, more than they can even go in the videos. So, yeah, I'd love to see you guys there, and thanks again.
0: And, yeah, you're on Odyssey, Gab, all kinds of stuff I've got here. I will make sure yep. that all of your links that you provided are in the show notes because, unlike some people, you don't hate money. <laughs> you don't hate publicity. And when it says, hey, put all your social media stuff here, you did it. So thanks for that because I – I've reached a point a long time ago where I don't have time to go search it down for people. That's one of the reasons I have the, the application form so I make sure I can make sure that people can find you. And folks need to follow you. And if, uh, like he said, he's, he, I, I don't know either how I still have the YouTube channel, uh, but you're on Odyssey as well. So if you want his videos, follow him on Odyssey. And hey, man, throw him some LBC coin while we could still use it before the, uh, the feds put it out of existence. Uh, Christian, man, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Jack. Really, really a fantastic interview. And uh, I, there was one point where he said that you know, he disagrees with me disagreeing. And I, I didn't think it was really utilitarian to bring it up at the time. I don't think we disagree so much as he, what he says they want to do and they're trying to do, completely agree with. Um, when he says food shortages, this is where I disagree. I, I, I don't disagree that. I disagree with how much. And like I said, 50% of that is... Uh, is bad. I'll just leave it at that. Like Whether he's right or I'm right, it's bad. The other th- place I think we disagree is the timeline to implementation and the, the percentage of possibility of them actually getting it all done. I think this is harder to do than a lot of people seem to believe, and I think there will be more resistance to it than most people expect. And, and I, I think that it may be this country that is the last stand. And it will be pockets. There will be some of these bigger cities. I think they'll they'll go wholesale into it. Um, however, I also do believe that an ideology doomed to fail will fail. And I think a lot of what they want to do is simply it's not that they won't try to do it. It's not that they won't get it done. It's that when they get it done, it won't work. That doesn't mean it can't destroy your life or destroy several generations, but I don't think it works. And if something doesn't work, eventually it fails. And the the bigger that you do a thing, the more likely it is to fail. You know, it's it's one thing to have. the Soviet Union being able, like I talked about it during this interview, the Soviet Union being able to have really stupid agricultural processes of practices and being able to uh, sustain them through importing grain from the, the mid, middle of the United States at a time when they were fighting a Cold War with the United States, all right? That's one thing. If you do it all over the place and you don't have a U.S., well, you see how that works, right? And and that makes it worse. But it also makes failure more likely. So I, I don't know that we disagree. I think it's, it's timeline and percentage of probability that we disagree with. The, the agenda is absolutely we agree. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, one of the ways that you can help support this show is to do your online shopping where? Tspaz.com. Never forget that. That's like just an important little website to remember. Tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go there when you do your online shopping. You start there. You help support us no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day is really cool. Like three years ago, I brought you a knife from a company called Outdoor Edge that I mainly had as a skinning knife when I'm hunting because it has a replaceable blade. So when the blade gets too dull and you don't feel like sharpening it, you push a button, pull it out, stick a new one in. But it's shaped like a regular knife. And Outdoor Edge, over time, came out with a, this is a a three-and-a-half-inch bladed kind of stubby. It's a really great skinning processing knife for, you know, gutting and skinning a deer or an animal of that size. That's exactly why I got it. The first year that I got it, I went on a hunt right after I picked it up. There were 12 other people on the hunt. 11 of the 12 had the same knife. One guy was like a very wealthy individual, hunts all over the world. He was carrying the $35 out the knife because it worked. Along the way, they came out with a 5-inch blade instead of the 3-inch blade, which gave you more flex and more fine, you know, fine cutting capabilities ability to slice meat uh, in larger cuts of meat if you're using to actually slice parts out. Uh, But it was really designed, and it is exceptional for boning. So since they're, you know, like two bucks a blade, I bought a pack of blades, and I started using it with my three-inch knife. Now, you might imagine the problem would be then, it's a folder, so if you put a five-inch blade and a three-inch knife and you fold it shut, like two inches of the blade sticks out the end. Not good, right? But you, you used it, and you put the blade away. And I always thought, why don't you have a bigger frame? So I'm getting ready to go to Florida again. My annual trip, should say mostly annual, almost every year I go. And we do a lot of fishing there. We'll be on the island 10 days. We'll eat fish, nine of them, fresh fish, nine of them. So I clean a lot of fish. So I was going to get some more of those blades. I'm on Amazon. And I'm like, does anybody make a freaking fillet knife like this, you know, that actually is made for filleting? Because that's what I use those longer blades for a, a lot as well. So I, I start checking into it. Outdoor Edge makes one called the Razor Fin. You get it, fin, fish, razor fin. So it was blue. It looked pretty cool. I wanted one, but it didn't come with a sheath. that could keep the extra blades stored and stuff like that. So I looked and I have one called the Razor Bone. It's the same knife in a different color. That's the one I have for you today. But the fin, the bone, they're both great. They're the same knife. Just do you want a sheath with it or not is what it's come down to. Um, fantastic. It's made with a steel called J2. It's a 420 J2 steel. Uh, it's the same steel that if you've ever had a ser- an operation and a surgeon cut you open with a scalpel, it's probably made with J2 steel. J2 steel is cheap. It's highly corrosion resistant and it gets scary ass sharp. It also doesn't hold an edge very good. But if you're making a knife to have a replaceable blade, cheap and super sharp is what you're looking for. Right? So you can sell the, the blades, and I do sharpen mine a bit with a steel. Um, but you know, after about a dozen of those, I just swap the blade out. It's two bucks, brand new blade, super sharp, all ready to go. And when you're all sandy and nasty and dirty and you're tired and you want a margarita and a shower and you've been fishing all day on the beach and you're just done, it's really nice to be able to just swat the blade out and fillet the last fish and be done with it. Um, and a sharp knife when it comes to filleting and skinning fish, boy, it really makes a huge difference. Anyway, check it out. It's great for hunting. It's great for fishing. It's great for a bunch of stuff. I put a lot of work into the review on this one. I put a video in the review. The Outdoor Edge Razor Bone Knife. Um, the Razor Fin's about 35 bucks if you get the razor bone with the sheath and the extra stuff it ends up being about 45 to 50 depending on whether you get the orange one or the gray one um they're all great it's up to you if you you think this belongs in your life which model they also have a pretty cool little EDC knife that's linked to at the end uh, i think it's called the razor light i'm going to pick one of those up i'm going to review it for you but i've had several comments from people already about it saying i own it and it's great and i can't see how it wouldn't be Outdoor Edge is doing some really cool stuff. They're definitely a company to check out. Um, And there is something about knowing, you know, when I'm in the middle of something, I don't have time to sit down and sharpen a knife. I can take two seconds, swap a blade out, and be back to razor sharp for a couple bucks. And, again, if you want to sharpen these blades, it's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. I'm telling you, three, four passes with a steel kind of comes right back. They do tend to wear out after, you know, enough use, though. But, again, two bucks a blade, Check it out. Outdoor Edge. Check out everything they have. They're really cool. Uh, I have a link to the whole Outdoor Edge store in the write-up today. Remember, if you were on Telegram, you'd already know this. And I bet the gray-handled one sold out already because it was in low inventory when I published it, and it looks cooler than the orange-handled one. Um, you get on our Telegram channel. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on get social. Every episode of the podcast has all my social links, including the Telegram channel. The cool thing about the channel is it's not a group. There's not a bunch of people talking. You're just basically, it would be like if you followed me on Twitter and Twitter actually made sure you see what I put out. Think of it that way. All right. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. It is for 20 week. And uh, we have for you today Light Up by Sticks. With that, it's been another edition of the Survival Podcast.